All right, well, this morning we are going to actually wrap up our Advent series, in a sense. We'll have a Christmas Eve service, but today is the last Sunday of Advent, if you can believe it. I don't know about you, but 2020 obviously has been a strange year. And uh, as we approach kind of the, the end of this, there's, it's this strange kind of mix of both feeling like it has gone really slowly, like on every day where we're trying to deal with everything, but then overall it feels like it's gone really fast. Like all of a sudden I can't believe that here we are on the last Sunday of Advent. Um, and last week... Uh, we, as, as you know, we've kind of gone through this Advent series, taking a look at some, uh, a series of prayers from the Book of Common Prayer, which was written back in the 1500s. Um, they were actually the first prayers that the English church would have prayed in their own language, which is really amazing when you think about it. And, um, and we talked about the importance of that. Jeff did a great job, a phenomenal job last week of um, just at the beginning of it. It's funny, I, I said, man, that was so powerful. And he said, oh yeah, that was, that was kind of an add-in at the last minute. It wasn't really the point of the sermon, but it was so amazing him unpacking why, um, what the value of these corporate prayers are. And whether you grew up in a tradition that did them or not, they are incredibly beautiful and can be really powerful. And so if you didn't, if you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon and hope that you find it as encouraging um, as, as I did. And so we are doing that together during this Advent, praying these uh, written prayers, prayers from uh, you know, 500 years ago that we can pray together this morning. So let's, let's pray um, together this morning. I think it's up, there we go. So would you join me? Lord, raise up, we pray, your power and come among us and with great might help us that whereas through our sins and wickedness we are obstructed and hindered, your bountiful grace and mercy through the satisfaction of your Son, our Lord, may deliver us, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory, world without end. Amen. We see in this prayer on the last Sunday of Advent, this plea to God to to help us, that we are obstructed and we are hindered, but, but God, you deliver us through your power, through the satisfaction of your Son, through Jesus. Now, the power of God on display in the incarnation. The, the power of God has been on display since the beginning of time, right? We know the power of God on display in all of creation. We look around and we, we see all of it. And we know and we see it through the Old Testament, through the, the delivering of his people out of Egypt. We see it in the battle of Jericho. When we, we see it when he speaks out of the whirlwind to, to Job. We see it as kingdoms rise and fall in his command. So all throughout the Old Testament, God's power is, is on display to, to be seen and to be spoken of and to be sung about. In Psalm 147, we see he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds he determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And then in the book of Jeremiah, we see it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, 
And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So all through the Old Testament, we see this awe of God's power and the pointing largely to creation as the example of that, pointing to the way that God has preserved his people, how he has delivered them from from their enemies and and pointing to those things and saying, God, you you are powerful, you are mighty. It is by your mighty hand that we are delivered. And then we see all that power of God come to earth in the form of a baby on display in the incarnation in flesh and blood. It's the word becomes flesh. The power of God that has been spoken about and sung about for generation after generation and generation that has been seen in the effects and its effects all over now resides in flesh and blood walking among us. Just imagine how people would be in awe of this power and how they would watch it before them being acted out. The power over illness on display, and it filled people with hope. In Luke 5, we see, But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. As they see the power of God on display through Jesus healing people, it fills them with hope, but also terrifies them as his power over demons is on display. In, in, in Matthew 8, Jesus casts out demons who'd been terrifying these villagers, these people, and he casts them out into a herd of pigs that go off, and, off a cliff and are drowned. It's a spectacular display. And the response of the people was that they came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. His power on display is terrifying. His power is unsettling. You think about when the disciples, when they're in the boat going across um, the sea and Jesus falls asleep and, and then this huge storm comes up and the waves crash and, and even these experienced men of the sea are terrified and they wake up Jesus. They say, Jesus, don't you care? And he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? After he calms the storms. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So many ways we see the power of God on display in Jesus. And the, the response of the people is one of wonder and curiosity and fear. And feeling unsettled. And feeling timid and wondering, like, how, how can we come this close to this Jesus? Like, what, what all is he capable of? And I think if we grasp how powerful our God is and the power of the incarnation and the power of the Holy Spirit, we would respond similarly as he demonstrates his power. His power over death as he raises Lazarus from the grave. His power over sin as he, as he forgives sins. And they say, what, who, how are you able to forgive sins? 
And Jesus, to display his power, says, well, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And so he tells the paralyzed man, get up and walk. And he does. And they end up responding, we've never seen anything like this. The power of God on display. The power over darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the power of the incarnation. The power of God manifested in flesh and blood. And it's not gone. That power didn't go away with Jesus when he ascended, not to return until he returns. It is with us who belong to Jesus. Romans 8 Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So all that power that has been spoken about and sung about and told about and experienced all throughout the Old Testament made manifest in flesh and blood in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation. All that power that then is displayed through the healing of illnesses, the raising of the dead, the the calming of the storms. All of that, Paul then says, that power you saw and heard about, that power that was in Jesus, it now dwells in you if you belong to him. We cannot even grasp this. And I think that for most of us, we don't even try. Most of us, and myself included, function on a day-to-day basis as if that power is not available to us. As if that power is something we still hear about occasionally and we are excited about hearing. is That power is being something that we see out there and in bigger things and in more important things. But that we don't experience that power on a day-to-day basis. And it's become so normal to us that practically we just go about our lives as if it's not even there. We try to obey Jesus in our own strength. Often when we, when we can't, we then justify ourselves in our own strength. Or when we see the sin in our, in our own lives, we try to fix it through our effort. And when we fail, sometimes then we end up just hopeless and assuming, well, this will never change. We pray for healing and we qualify it. We pray for deliverance with doubt in our hearts. What would it look like if we believed that that power really was alive in us? Last week, Jeff talked about anticipating Jesus. How Advent is about anticipation. Anticipating with great excitement the coming of the Messiah. What if we anticipated what the power of God does when it dwells inside of our hearts. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Light so powerful that it pierces through all the darkness, that there's no corner of our hearts or of the world that the light of Jesus cannot and will not overcome. Do you believe that? It's a great irony That the darkness in our world is never more pronounced, it seems, than it is at Christmas. 
at least for us on this side of the world, we have a reminder in creation of that. It's this, we're celebrating the light of the world at a time where the sun sets at like lunchtime here. And in that, it shows, it's a symbol of what's going on in so many hearts. We know that depression is never at its highest point than at Christmas. I think part of that's because the busyness of our normal day-to-day lives throughout the year just kind of hides some of those things. We kind of numb ourselves to, to some of the stuff that's going around or going in our hearts or, or functioning in our, our families. But then at Christmas, there's enough reflection that some of those things settle in. Brokenness seems more extreme. Grief seems more profound. Regret seems more overwhelming. And it's in the midst of that kind of darkness that the light of Jesus Christ shines with great power. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think that it's God saying, ah, I wish that they weren't so sad at Christmas. I wish that wasn't the case. I think that by design, God in his mercy lets us feel some of the deepest grief and pain at the time where he is reminding us of the links that he went to rescue us and the light that shines through even the darkest of nights. That power that delivers us in the midst of darkness is alive in us. I mean, Jesus even said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. That is a passage that is worthy of a lot of unpacking and an entire sermon series. But what, we, what the plain meaning is, is that obviously Jesus is not saying that we are going to settle with some kind of second class amount of power or hope. He's saying that this power that you have seen on display will now dwell in you who belong to me. That is worthy of anticipation. Now let me ask you, what is, what is something that you wish you could change? Especially about yourself right now. Like, in what do you feel obstructed and hindered by your own sin? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a sin you've battled over and over again. Maybe it's a reaction that you always seem to have, no matter how many times you tell yourself, I'm not going to react that way, you still do. Maybe it's something that you can't forgive, even though that you know that you should, and that you, just, you just can't go there. You just can't. Every time you think about it, it just hurts too much, and you can't forgive. Or maybe it's an attitude that you just can't seem to get rid of. Do you believe that the power that raises from the dead and conquers sin is available to you. And here's the thing. It's not available to you begrudgingly. Jesus doesn't make that power available to us like like a big brother bailing you out of a mess. Instead, he does it joyfully. It's the joy of Christ that gives us that power to overcome the sin and the darkness in our hearts. 
that helps us in our weakness. Thomas Goodwin he's a, uh, was a Puritan in the 17th century. He wrote this, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. He's saying that Jesus, the joy of Jesus actually is enlarged by the comforting and showing of grace to us who are weak in our flesh. So when this power is made available to you, it isn't, it isn't like God saying, like, here, I mean, I, I, I will overcome this for you, but for crying out loud, could you at least, you know, try to do better? He's saying, no, come and be healed. Like, I, I, this is my joy to do this for you. One of my, the, the favorite book I have read this year by far is a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And he says this, He's talking about the heart of Jesus Christ. He uses this illustration. He says, a, a compassionate doctor tells this story. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. Just picture this. He's had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. Do you catch that? The joy of Jesus increases when we come to him for deliverance from our sin. He is not receiving us begrudgingly or frustrated or saying like it's about time or saying like why are you still having to come to me? His joy enlarges and increases when we do that, when we come to him with our sin. And so you may be sitting there thinking like, well, great, then he must love me because that's what I'm always doing. I'm always, I can't, I can't seem to beat the sin. I can't seem to, to refute this. I can't seem to live in the way that he's calling me to live. So if what you're saying is true, then Jesus must be thrilled and overflowing with joy with me. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Jesus came for the sick. He is not dismayed when the sick come to him. He's filled with joy. So when you go to him and say to him, help me, you're not a burden or a hindrance. You're doing that which brings Jesus great joy. Now, yes, I could go on a, a different tangent, a different sin and say, well, does that mean, oh, good, then that means I should continue in sin. And, and that, same, that same argument and logic is, is unpacked in Romans 5 and 6. 
they're saying that, as, as Paul's telling them, this very truth that where, where sin increases, grace abounds. It's just overflowing. And, and then he says, what shall we say then? Should we continue? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So there's this tension, but the bottom line is the more you and I sin, the more grace abounds. The more his, the power of God displayed through his grace is, is on display, the more it abounds. And where grace abounds in our hearts, sin decreases. You catch that? As sin in my life, like as, as more is revealed to me and I see more and more dark corners of my heart and just when I thought I'd had all that figured out, like I turn a corner in my heart and oh, there's more darkness and more reactions and more sinful thoughts and desires that are there. Then I find that the grace of Christ just abounds all the more. And when the grace of Christ abounds and overflows in my heart, it floods that darkness with light and decreases the sin. With power. It purifies. This is why Jesus can say, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So think about it. What is that thing? What is that thing that you desperately need the power of God to overcome in your life? power of God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit if you belong to Jesus. It's made available to you by a joyful Jesus who wants you to be free so much that he subjected himself to his own creation and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved. He wanted you and me to be free so much that he did everything to secure our freedom. I feel like we need to let that sink in. Please, let that sink in. Would you let it bring comfort, you who are knocked down by guilt and shame? Would you let it humble you you who are self-righteous, would you let that bring peace? You who are worried. Would you let that bring courage? You who are afraid. Would you let that bring joy? You who are bitter. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. Okay, so how does that work? I just want to finish with some really practical, hopefully helps to understand how does this work then to access this power. You're saying it's available. It is, it is on display. Every time I see the power of God on display in Scripture, I can know that that same power resides in me through the Holy Spirit. I want to anticipate the work that the Lord is doing. So here are some things to keep in mind. Number one, he's going to work on you, not necessarily your circumstances. And we've all heard the phrase, God never gives you anything more than you can handle. It's a nice sentiment, but it's completely untrue and unbiblical. 
Because I don't know about you, but in my life, God has given me many, many, many things that I could not handle. Today, he's given me things I can't handle. This whole pandemic, if it did nothing at all other than show us that we are constantly being given things that we can't handle, then I don't know what good it was. That statement comes from a verse from Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, when he said, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We look at something like that and we say, well, what does that mean? What does that have to do with, with power? Like I, God's power is what delivers us, but what does, that, what does that actually mean? Well, it's a good thing the word became flesh so we could see what it means. In Matthew 4, we see Satan tempt Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He's out in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days and Satan offered the immediate relief of his external circumstances. First with food. Been hungry for 40 days. Seeing the power of God transform stone into bread sounds pretty amazing. But Jesus responds with, man shall not live by bread alone. Then Satan offers a demonstration to prove that he was the son of God. But Jesus responds with, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then he offers him a a kingdom that could come easily and without sacrifice and without the road that Jesus was called by the Father to walk. And Jesus responds, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. All of the power of God is manifested in Jesus, every ounce. And how is it displayed? Not by fixing external circumstances. The turning of stones into bread, a stunt and a show, or by receiving a false kingdom. It is displayed through his ability to be faithful to the Father as the Father is faithful to him. Even in the midst midst of incredible temptation and trying circumstances. Tell me we don't need that kind of power on display in us today. See, in my experience, the greatest temptation is to take shortcuts rather than believe in the power of God. We want quick external fixes, and we ask God to do that. And when he doesn't do it, we then take matters into our own hands, which is pretty much the source of all of my grief over the last few years in the church. We want quick external fixes fixes apart from the power of God. We want laws to bring change. We want our children to obey. We want health, wealth, and prosperity. We want peace around us. But God offers something even greater, peace in you. I mean, it's so much easier to pray, God, change my work situation. Either give me a new job or make my job better. But so much more powerful to pray, God, shine your light through me in the darkness of my workplace. 
It's so much easier to pray in the midst of a broken relationship. God, change them. Make them see what they have done. Make them come and ask for forgiveness. But it's so much more powerful to pray, God, help me truly forgive them. Now, my disclaimer is this. There's nothing wrong with praying that God's power would be on display through the changing of circumstances. If you are sick, pray for healing. If a relationship is broken, pray for for heart change. Pray for reconciliation. Pray that God would provide for for your family through you. Pray, Pray these things, absolutely. But God's power is on display most when ordinary people are able to endure through extraordinary circumstances. God heals people all the time, and it's dismissed all the time. I've been in a lot of hospitals with a lot of people in a lot of different circumstances and situations. And I've talked with a lot of medical personnel. I have seen just outright verifiable miracles where they have even acknowledged this was a miracle. But that is never as impactful to them as when they walk into a room of someone who's just been given a terminal diagnosis and they are singing praises to God. I have seen them explain away all kinds of physical miracles and they cannot explain that. It's not easy to explain that. The power of God on display in Jesus is that there's no situation he will lose us to. No temptation that will face you that is not common to man. God is faithful. No temptation where he will not deliver you and give you the ability to endure and display his power in that way. He gives you grace for every moment. The power that dwells in you is not just the calming of the storm, but the calming of your heart in the midst of the storm. That is far better. And it's far better because another storm is coming. Whatever circumstance you can think of right now that you think in your mind, that you have bought into the idea that, God, if you would just change this circumstance, everything would be fine. He could fix that right now, and within 10 minutes, you'll have another. Because we're in a broken world. And because sin infects every corner of it, including in our hearts, and we will, we will see something else. We will have some other trial. And so what is better than God constantly going out, putting out fires? It's making your heart impervious to fires. That's power. Him restoring you and making you new in the midst of the storms. I'll speed up a little bit. Second one is it takes work. And if you've been paying attention over the last five years, you might be like, wait, wait, it takes work? Like, you would rightly say to me, Jay, I thought you said that this is all dependent on God. Like, it's all his power. You say all the time the problem is that we're trying to do it in our own strength. True. But that is not the same thing as saying that we do nothing. 
God could just change us, and he sometimes does in, in certain ways, but his goal is not just to change us, but to maximize our joy in him in the process. And so he gives us a part to play, and that part is our faithful obedience. I've used this analogy before a couple years ago. If you remember that, then you have greater retention than I do. But if I want to be a, a quarterback like Aaron Rodgers, what would I do? Like you could say, okay, you got to go train, you got to lift weights, you got to do the drills, you got to work hard. But at some point, there's a ceiling for my development, right? Like I could work hard and I could get better day by day. And I'm never going to displace Aaron Rodgers as the starting quarterback for the Packers. I might be able to play for the Bears or the Broncos, let's be fair, but not for the Packers. And this is the, that, that idea that like, okay, I'm supposed to be the quarterback for the Packers. And I'm just going to work really hard and I'm just going to go do all the drills. I'm going to lift the weights and I'm going to do everything. And this is, the, this is the idea, this is the theological idea that Jesus saved you. Now do the best you can to be good. Which Paul explicitly refutes as foolish in Galatians 3. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So we know that's foolishness. I can't become like Jesus just by trying harder. Because there is a ceiling because of the sin that infects me. No, I need something more. But the other side could be, I say, well... I don't care how much I work out. I'm never going to be Aaron Rodgers. So I'm just going to sit back and pray that God would just make me play like him. And so every once in a while, I'm going to grab a football and go out in the backyard, take one throw. And if I can't throw it 60 yards on a dime, then I guess he hasn't done it yet. That's how a lot of us, unfortunately, then approach sanctification. We fall into this other ditch. God, make me patient. And then I blow up in frustration and say, huh, Guess he hasn't answered that prayer yet. God, make me more loving. And we get really critical of somebody. We say, well, still hasn't, still hasn't delivered me from that sin. I wonder when he's going to do that. That's not the process of sanctification. The process of sanctification is if in response to God's promise that he was going to make me like Aaron Rodgers, I went out and I worked hard and I threw and I did the drills and I lifted the weights. And as I did, as I did that, believing that God is going to do this for me, as I do that, all of a sudden he starts to do something miraculous in my body where my ligaments are, are stretched beyond their physical limitations. Muscles start growing where they've long been forgotten. My, they start responding and all of a sudden I start seeing things differently and I start seeing everything more slowly and I can, I can catch up with things and I, all of a sudden things click as I'm studying. It like makes sense in ways that there's just no way I could possibly have done on my own. And pretty soon I am throwing perfect 60-yard bombs naturally because that's who I am now. I'm, I'm a new person. That's sanctification. As we obey him, in faithful obedience to the promises and things that he has laid out for us, we become like him. As we step out in faith, the faith that was given to us and built in us, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's like stepping into the sun to get warm. Do you remember the sun? It's a beautiful memory. 
I don't pray when I'm sitting in the shadows and in the shade and I see the sun. I don't pray. I don't, I don't pray that, that the sun would just warm me. I don't pray that it would fall on me while I'm sitting there in the shadows. But rather, I step out into its light. And in doing so, I would not say, I warmed myself, but rather, the sun has warmed me. We are called to step into the light of Christ, to walk in it. And the light warms us. It transforms us. And as it does, our faith is is justified. Meaning, I, I stepped out knowing that you would bring warmth, and then you did. And so you proved my faith was justified. And it then grows in our hearts. And the lies saying you'd be so much warmer and cozier in the shadows seem more ridiculous, more outlandish. And the truth of Jesus shines all the brighter. That's sanctification. It happens when we take a promise that God has made and we act in faith, believing he will do what he says he will do, believing that what he says is better is actually better. So I want to say this cutting thing to this person who offended me, but I bite my tongue in faithful obedience, which is to say that I, that I bite my tongue with a heart that says, I trust you that holding my tongue is better. And over time of doing that, he shapes me and transforms me to where I can't even remember why I ever wanted to say something cutting in the first place. I want to hoard my resources, but I give in faithful obedience, even when I'm scared because I'm acting in faith when he says that it is blessed, more blessed to give than to receive. I don't give to earn anything from God. I give in faithful obedience. And pretty soon, I can't even imagine what it would be like to not give. Or I want to be grumpy in my circumstances, but God, you've commanded me to be thankful in all circumstances. So I'm I'm going to give thanks in faithful obedience in all circumstances. I'm going to give thanks here, not, not through gritted teeth, but in faith, trusting you that it is better to give thanks. And the Holy Spirit is going to make me more thankful. That's how we become like Jesus. And lastly, quickly, is it it takes time. It takes time. He works on your heart, not on your circumstances. It takes work and it takes time. If you're like me, you're just asking, why does it take so long? If your power is so great, then why don't you just do it? And it's just simply this, I believe from from Scripture and from years of walking with Jesus and seeing how he transforms us, it's because if he just did it, it would rob you and me of the joy and peace that is found only in dependence on him. It would rob you and me of the intimacy 
of being greeted with joy by our Jesus when we come to him sick and in need of healing and help. Of seeing that the look on his face is not one of shame or embarrassment, but one of joy as he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. See, he does change us sometimes in a moment in certain things, in his kindness, but he doesn't most of the time. Because you, you, you have to remember that his goal is not to rid you of sin. I want to say that again. God's goal is not to rid you and me of sin. His goal is to restore your relationship with him. Not just on a legal level, but full restoration of the joy of that relationship. And that takes much more than just changing our behavior. It means changing our desires. It means changing what we love. It means changing who we run to. It means changing all of those things. And in his great wisdom and kindness and patience and steadfastness, He does it from one degree of glory to another. Yes, removing our sin is part of that, but it's not the end. Because God's design is not for us to live a sinless life apart from him, but to be reconciled to him and to know everlasting joy. So when you think, even during this season, why why am I still doing this? Why is this still a reality in my life? Look at God's kindness and how far you've come, not not how far you have to go. When you see the road ahead of you, know that he is faithful to complete this work. And remember, it is his joy to receive you in the midst of those struggles. So this Advent, marvel at the power of God and be in wonder at the fact that if you belong to Jesus, this power dwells in you. And it is given to you with abundant grace and mercy. So walk in faithful obedience and watch the power of God transform you. May it be so. I'm going to have the the band come up. We're going to sing another song. And before we do, I want us to pray together. And so if, you, if this has stirred anything in you, if you are in that place right now, I would encourage you to let your voice ring out. And let's pray this together to our Lord. Lord, raise up, we pray, your power and come among us. And with great might, help us That whereas through our sins and wickedness we are obstructed and hindered, your bountiful grace and mercy through the satisfaction of your Son, our Lord, may deliver us to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory, world without end. May it be so. Amen.